Okay, well, let's turn to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to try and make it down to um, verse 14. That's the goal. And then we'll leave um, verse 15 where the seventh angel is going to sound uh, that trumpet, which is also the third woe, and we'll pick that up in our next time we resume. Um, as we come to the book of Revelation, it's something we've said before. I just want to take a couple of minutes and go over this again. Um, and, and it's not just for the book of Revelation, by the way. It's with prophetic material in general, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, I think it's probably pretty obvious to all of us who've studied these things at all or have been in the church for any length of period. Not everybody has the same idea about how to approach prophecy. How do you approach prophetic scripture? And so, um, you know, I'm going to, I definitely have a leaning and an opinion about this. Um, and I'm, I'm slanted as I give this, you know, kind of a, a quick summary and overview. But, um, and I'm going to oversimplify it. So please know that. Basically, you, you can come down to when you think about prophecy, and there's two camps those that are going to take prophecy literally, and those that are going to take it. Um, uh, spiritually, and, and by that they're going to, or allegorically, that, that's the word I'm, I'm looking for, forget spiritually, allegorically, because I think everybody would say we're taking the word of God spiritually, but, but you know, but spiritualize, allegorize, and, and these are the two camps, but, and I definitely would fall in the camp that says we take it literally, that does not mean that I don't know what a hyperbole is, <laughs> that does not mean I don't understand um, symbols, that the symbols um, are to represent something. So certainly there's all kinds of figures of speech that are found within prophecy that are intended to give us a literal understanding of something. And I would even argue that when somebody uses hyperbole or some other figure of speech about a literal truth, it's a literary device, it's a, a device we use in conversation to underline something to emphasize something, to, to bring your attention to it. And, and, and we do this in everyday conversation, and we do a lot of this. So in saying that it's literal, it does not mean that um, we, we are saying that every image is literal, but those images are representing a literal truth. So this is one way in which we take it, and that's how we take it. We believe that we will read this and look for a literal truth. Um, interpretation. The other camp looks at prophecy, and they divide it into two categories. Now, they probably would, you know, maybe they would, uh, I don't know, chafe a little bit under my summary of this, but they would take some literally, and they would take some, and they would spiritualize it, or they would allegorize it. And, and so, um, I'll give you an example. Micah chapter 4 and 5. In Micah, let's just turn there. You'll see it for yourself. And what happens is they'll take some aspects of uh, prophecy and they will take it literally. One large important area that they would take it literally, and of course I do as well, um, is all of the prophecies of the first coming of Jesus are to be taken literally. Okay? So in, in chapter 5, but you, Bethlehem, Verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem of Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old 
from everlasting. Um, so we read this, and we take that literally. I mean, where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. This is what Herod asks um, the, the scribes, the leaders of the country. Hey, where is the Messiah to be born? Bethlehem. They took it literally. And we could go through hundreds of other prophecies where Jesus' clothes are divided, where they cast lots for those clothes. We could go down a long, long list of um, prophecy about the first coming of Christ, and we all agree that you take it literally, and we celebrate, we celebrate God telling us ahead of time what's going to take place, and we use this to show that Scripture has an author that dwells outside of time. His name is God, and we need to hear what he has to say. And if these prophecies have come to pass, then we must pay attention to everything else that he has had to say, and we draw upon that as we believe we should. So both camps do this. But in chapter 4 of Micah, um, we look at this, and, and, and we have a, a, a different take. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Has that ever happened? No. No. Never happened. Nations have always been fighting against each other. And so as we look at this, we, we say, okay, the latter days. This is going to happen at the end of the days. And that the Lord himself is going to rule from Jerusalem. And, in, and, and as he rules from Jerusalem, there's going to be an, a, a peace that is upon planet Earth that has never existed before where tanks and aircraft and all the rest are going to be used for agriculture. Right? They're going to, uh, all the weapons of the warfare, their swords will pl- turn into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, and a nation is not going to fight against nation anymore. And so the camp over here, the literal camp, um, would say, we believe that Jesus will rule and reign upon the earth and that he is going to bring a peace and that people will come to Jerusalem and they will hear him teaching from Mount Zion. And I'm not going to read the rest of this, but you can. As you keep on reading, and I've, I've taken you a good ways in, but if you read the rest of chapter 4 and into ch- all the way to chapter 5, verse 2, there is nothing that says, now, take it literally. Because those will look at this and say, no. Christ, some would say, no, Christ is not going to rule and reign upon the earth. Um, he's not, that's not what's going to happen. This is just talking, it's, a, it's spiritualizing what's going to happen. The church is now Israel, and the Lord rules and reigns within the church. We don't even have peace within the church, I mean, let alone peace that he's going to bring upon planet earth. And so they would say, no, no, we don't take this literally as Christ reigning upon the earth. And I say, how do you know that? What did you read in this text that said, now don't take this part literally? And the answer is you can't. And so as you read from the Old Testament, one passage 
that speaks of the future and the uh, second coming of Christ and the first coming of Christ, they just, they kind of, they go together. The Old Testament, you don't read it and say, and, and really see the difference between the first and the second coming. Time tells us that we got to take it differently. The first coming of Christ and him saying he's coming again tells us there are certain, certain things that has not been fulfilled. And we must take um, these other things as a future prophecy yet to be fulfilled. But many will say, no, these have all been fulfilled in the church, spiritually. But, but as you read this passage, there's nothing in that passage that would tell you to do that. So if I'm going to take prophecy chapter 5, verse 2, literally about a town in Bethlehem, then why am I not going to take the rest of it literally? There's nothing in the text that would say, spiritualize it, allegorize it. So as we move into Revelation chapter 11, this is a passage that again, people will say, no, um, the temple that we're going to read about here, it's the temple of the church. We are the temple. And of course, the, the scriptures talk about how we individually are the temple of God and he dwells within us. Collectively, we are the temple of God, you know, living stones being fit together. And we accept that. We understand that. But, but we know that's just, that, that is a, um, it's an Old Testament concept that we understand of temple, and, and we understand we really don't think we're going to actually form a literal temple together, do we? No, we don't think that. We understand we're just talking, in, you know, using the temple as a metaphor. We're not going to actually turn into the stones of a building, right? So we understand that, that that is a metaphor that's being used, a well-established spiritual biblical metaphor. But what then people will do is when they read a passage like we're going to read here, maybe, um, when we read it, they will say, no, the church is this temple. Um, and so uh, I, I would disagree um, with that. And as we read this, let's just uh, allow the literal sense to instruct us of this passage. Um, there are some key um, events in Scripture that alert us to the fact that we are in the last days. Okay, now there's all kinds of people that want to point to all kinds of things and say, this tells us we're in the last days. I'll give you a list, and it's going to step on some of your toes. But you can't, you can't disagree with me biblically. Um, some will say, look at, um, uh, look at the fact that there's uh, many earthquakes. That tells you you're living in the last days. You, you, can't, you can't prove that biblically. Actually, I mean, what Jesus says is that there's going to be all kinds of earthquakes. They're going to happen through the intervening time of his ascending to heaven and him returning. Wars and rumors of wars. These things are going to continue to happen throughout the time period. And we've taken some of these things and said, no, th this is it. So every time we hear an earthquake, we think, oh, the Lord's about to come. Ah, well, I wouldn't go there. I don't go there. So we can go through a list of things that says, this is it, you know, um, uh, you know, and we can make a big deal about, you know, ATM machines and credit cards and, you know, the, the microchips and all that. And I, that, that may in the future have something, but right now, it doesn't mean anything. So there are certain things that we can look at that may in the future come out to mean something. But as we sit here right now tonight, you can't look and say Jesus is coming back because the microchip has been existed, you know, come into um, existence. You can't say that biblically. What you can say, though, is that two things um, that the, 
without question, the Bible says will happen in the last days. Israel will be a nation again, and there's going to be a temple. Without question, Jesus said it, Daniel said it, John is going to say it. These things are clear that are going to happen. And so when you think about end times and prophecy, the, the thing I would say to pay, your, pay attention to is Israel and what's happening in Israel, specifically what's going on with the temple. Now, we may see that thing get erected before the rapture happens, or we may not. The Bible doesn't say. But that is a key piece. And so let, let's read here. And um, I'll just read a, a few verses to begin with. This is verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they shall prophesy 1,260 days. That's 42 months or three and a half years. Um, and they will do this uh, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And so we'll stop right there. So here we are. John is writing in 96 AD, 26, 25 years earlier. Um, the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed, as was prophesied by Jesus. That not one stone would be left upon another. And um, you, you look at the Temple Mount, and we'll have a picture to, to look at here in a couple of minutes. But when you look at that, you're not going to see. Um, it's just a, it's a bedrock with um, other shrines that have been built by um, Muslims. But you don't find any stones of the, uh, uh, the temple that Jesus went to standing upon another, which I know is confusing to some because some have looked at the pictures of everybody at the Western Wall where the Jews will go and pray. You've seen them probably there. You're like, yeah, but look at all those stones upon one another. How can you say that all the stones have come down? Well, that's not the temple. That's the retaining wall. It's a retaining wall of an enlarged temple. So those stones were not the temple. They're the retaining wall. And so some have made a big deal about this, and it's, it's just really, really simple. Herod expanded the footprint of the Temple Mount, and he built a retaining wall to allow for a larger group of people to uh, come up onto there. So the, the temple um, is something that was gone by the time John was writing this. I'm sure he would have had particular interest of this. So which temple is he talking about? We know it's not the one that Jesus went to. It's destroyed. Um, of course, in any of the temples that have, would have come before that, Solomon's was destroyed in 586 B.C. So it's not that one. Certainly not that one. Um, so are we talking about the temple that Ezekiel writes extensively about? As a matter of fact, Ezekiel writes so extensively on the temple um, in his um, um, in his prophecy that you probably haven't even read the details of it because you're like, oh my goodness, I just can't read all of this detail. And he gives so much information. But I believe, and, and many others do as well, that that's a temple that will be in the future when Jesus is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem like we read about in Micah chapter 4. 
That's the temple that he's going to be at. And that one is not this one. That it's a, it's a different um, structure altogether. So which is this? This is what I would call, and you see it up there, the tribulation temple. This is the temple that is going to be built um, and, and be in existence, maybe built before, but certainly in existence during the, um, the great tribulation, that seven-year period that we're reading about in Revelation 6 through 19. It's also called Daniel's 70th week. A week is a, a, it's a, a difficult translation for us as we read it because we think about seven days, but just think about it you know, when you read that. Know that in the Hebrew, it's, a, it's, a, it's seven of anything. And so um, we think week, we think seven days, but it very easily proven that that is seven. It's referring to 77s or 70-year periods, 490 years. And he said that you can start counting when the walls of Jerusalem are being rebuilt. And we see that in the days of Nehemiah. And that will go up until the Messiah is cut off. And 69 or 483 years will be fulfilled. That leaves one week, the 70th week, a seven-year period. And that, that period of time is talked about in so many different ways. It's called the 70th week or the, that seven-year period. It's called the Great Tribulation. It's called 1,260 days. It's called 42 months. It's also called time, one year, times, two years, and half a time. Time, times, and half a time. So this period of time is kind of talked about in every imaginable way to describe it. Well, we are at the place where we are 42 months in, and there is 42 months to go. This is the mid part of the tribulation. And at that mid part of the tribulation, there is a temple that he is told to measure, but he is told to leave out a part of it. So I believe that this is a temple that will be built. Daniel talked about it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 talks about this period of time when the Antichrist will come and the abomination of desolation will happen. So Daniel 9, 26 through 28. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22. And hopefully 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4 sounds familiar to you because we talked about it this past Sunday. We were reading and studying there. All of these talk about uh, a temple that's going to be present and specifically that the Antichrist is going to come in in the middle of that tribulation uh, period into the temple and he's going to say, I'm God, worship me. Now, we're not going to get into that. We studied that um, on Sunday. So the question is like, well, the temple is really key to, um, to the Jews. And of course, they have rejected Jesus Christ. They still believe that they should be offering all these sacrifices up. They dwell in their land and have dwelt in their land since 1948. They have uh, military superiority over that entire region. Why haven't they built that temple? And I mean, the, the only answer is they are trying to keep peace with the Muslims, and they know that if they go up onto this temple, can we put the uh, slide up? Do we have the picture of, of that? So I don't know how well you can see that. But the, you, know, you got the temple. Go to the next one, too, uh, the next slide. And that's a kind of an aerial view looking right down on the Dome of the Rock. So go back to the other one. But you know the, what you have on here is you have the Dome of the Rock, which is um, a, more like a shrine. But to the south of that, which would be kind of moving to the left in the picture, you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque. 
And that is where um, Muslims will come and they will pray. That is the, 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 the structure that is full of activity. Okay, That is the, the hub of, of that material. I read something today too um, by Palestinian Muslims who say, listen, for us, this, this place... It, is, um, it can't be any more important to anybody. Other Muslims will regard it as the third holiest place. He says, but for us, this is our culture. This is our home. This is our identity. Our identity is locked up in this place. So they're not going to give the spot up. They're not going to welcome the Jews to come on up onto what is called the Temple Mount there and build their temple. And so you have this tension. Most Jews in Israel today are fine with that. They're, it's a secular country. They're not interested. You, but you do have a group, a, a very small fringe group, um, the Temple Mount Faithful, um, the Temple Institute. Um, and they have gone painstakingly through drawing up plans. They have built, or actually built, they have um, made the clothes for the priests, the lampstand. They have made the, the, the utensils uh, for the sacrifices of the animals, the, blood, uh, the bulls that would catch the blood. And the list goes on and on and on. And they have made all of these things. There's training for the priests. And this goes on. But most people in Israel look at them and say, yeah, they're weird. So, so that's the kind of the, the attitude of them. And you, know, and you have two groups that say they're weird. Um, the secular Jew, yeah, they're weird. That's, we, we don't want anything to do with that. Then you have the ultra-Orthodox that say, you know, that's weird because only the Messiah can rebuild the temple and only the Messiah can do this stuff. So we want nothing to do with anything that this group has to do with because the Messiah has to come and to do that. And the unfortunate thing is, is they're going to believe another. Jesus said, I've come and you have not believed me, but you're going to believe another. And it's very likely that they will be deluded by the Antichrist into thinking that he is their Messiah. So this is why it's not being built today. There are those that have the interest. It's interesting, in 1948, Israel came back into their land in fulfillment of the prophecy that you read in Ezekiel 38, where it says in the latter days that Israel will come back into their land. They'll come back um, you know, from the sword. And out of, coming out of World War II and the Holocaust camps, they come out of that sword and they come into the land and they... Of course, immediately have a fight on their hands the day after, you know, or the day of. I forget what it was, the day of, the day after declaring statehood. And they fought, and they gained, they gained the foothold in the, in the land, and they were able to live there. And then in 1967, uh, Jerusalem was, was, was taken back. They actually won that in the, the 67 war. And they captured the Temple Mount. It was theirs. But then the Secretary of Defense, Moshe Dayan, gave this back to them. And it was, no doubt, an attempt to try and keep peace. So there is tension that exists on this site. So it's not a matter of just go build it. It is, it, you can imagine what would happen. It, the whole place would ignite like a powder keg. So something's going to happen, and we don't know what, that will allow for this Temple to be built. Cannot say definitively, but in that passage I gave you in Daniel 9, verses 26 through 28, what we find out, what we read is this, is that the Antichrist is going to make a treaty at the beginning of the tribulation. 
We're not told what it is. But my wondering mind, inquiring mind, wants to know, is that maybe a treaty to allow them to build a temple in this much disputed place? Maybe it is. And what would, what would cause that to happen? Well, you can go read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and see maybe if that's it. But we don't know. So they control this place. And there's no way. If we could go to the next photo, that aerial view. So the Dome of the Rock there, that is where um, most people in the world, um, and I'm, I'm not trying to dispute that, but that's where most believe that, and right underneath that dome, that is where the Holy of Holies was. That's where the temple was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so, you know, if you're wanting to build your temple there, you got a problem, don't you? And so what could possibly happen that would allow them to build there? And, and, and we, we really don't know. It's hard to imagine. But... Um, and, and can you see the, the A and B on that? Are you guys able to see that, A and B? So the B is the Dome of the Rock, and you see the A. It's this little, I mean, it's like this, this big, a little dome, a little gazebo, really. And, there's, and this is another spot that some have said, particularly a man by the name of Asher Kaufman. Um, and you can read his whole article in, I think it's the 1988 Bi- Biblical Archaeology Review. And he makes a case to say that that's the spot. That he believes it's there, and he goes through all kinds of reasons that I'm not going to get into. But that's about 300 feet um, to the north of the Dome of the Rock. If you keep going to the south, you would go down to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So um, a temple is going to be built. Something's going to have to happen um, that would allow for uh, a temple to go up there. But the interesting thing that we read here is in verse 2. Did you catch that? Measure the temple, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. Um, And I don't know, to me, it doesn't matter whether you go with position A or you go with position B or wherever you go on that temple mount to say that's where the temple is going to be built. There's going to be a portion of that that is left out. But the Lord identifies it to John, who was very familiar with the temple. And he was very familiar with where the court of the Gentiles were going to be. We, we you know, wonder about it. It's to the south, there's no doubt, because that's how everybody came in. But he understood this. So, it, well, what I believe is going to happen is a temple will be built in this spot, because it's the only place it would be acceptable for the Jews to worship. Because the Word of God... And the Old Testament says so. And obviously, if, if they are establishing it and they're going into the Levitical system, it's not a system that is any valid any longer because Jesus was sacrificed once for all. But they're going to build it. And, and when they do, in whatever spot it is, to the south of that spot, there's going to be an area where the court of the Gentiles. So can you imagine a place up here where you have both the temple for the Jews... And then an area marked out that is for the court of the Gentiles. And so you would have this place where they would both be worshiping on uh, the Temple Mount. So to me, just reading here, I pay a lot of attention as I read and, and look over um, what's happening in Israel. I'm curious with the Temple Mount because it's going to be, the Temple's going to be there. 
Israel is there, but their temple is not yet there. So will we see it before we're raptured? Maybe, maybe not. The Bible doesn't tell us that part. We just know that by the middle of the tribulation, there is a temple. So maybe it gets started on, on day one. Who knows what the scenario is going to be. So I mean, anyways, Asher Kaufman, if you want to go read that, Biblical Archaeology Review will give you more details than you're probably interested in. Um, again, yeah, all the temple... Uh, Clothing has been made, priests are being trained, uh, trained temple utensils are being designed and constructed. Um, in Daniel 9, um, I kind of may refer to that, but let me just read to you Daniel 9, beginning at verse 26. And after 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be at the flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for seven years. But in the middle of the week, 42 months in, 1,260 days in, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. What we read this past Sunday, 2 Thessalonians 2, Verses 3 and 4, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless a falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. How is he revealed? He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. It's going to happen up on that temple mount that we've been looking at somewhere. Matthew 24, 15, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation, Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. And Jesus goes on to say, you got to run. you got to go hide, Israel. If you're in Judea, you got to flee. So Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus himself says this is going to take place. And it is a future event from where we are at this very moment. So read with interest. You know, if you get out there and you read Asher Kaufman's, and I'm not even saying he's actually right it's just very interesting to me. Um, you know, yeah, go read that. But, but also just also type in a critique of Asher Kaufman to get a balanced view. And there's plenty of articles out there that are critiquing him because he is a minority view. Um, but anyways, there you go. Let's, let's move on. Verses 3 and 4. Let's get on to the two witnesses. Um, and they are faithful in delivering the word of the Lord, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And so um, they're going to be there. Now, when are they going to come on the scene? I don't know. Maybe they come on right at the beginning. Maybe right at the beginning. They, they, they've been there, and we're um, here going to read it. We believe we're in the mid-tribulation. We know there's 144,000 sealed Jews, but these two guys have been prophesying, they've been speaking, they've been performing signs and wonders. What are they saying? Maybe something like, don't follow that guy. Jesus is your Messiah. It's not the Antichrist. It's Jesus Christ. You need to listen to him. And signs and wonders are being performed by these guys. Um, and as we're going to read, much to the irritation. If they've been there the whole time, it's like, you know, 
when, when things happen and the obusos opened up and the demons come flying out of there and terrorize the earth, they're going to say, let me tell you what it is. And they're going to be speaking up, it would seem, throughout these first three and a half years, giving commentary. I don't know, are they going to be on Fox News and CNN and, you know, in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer? Well, let me tell you, Wolf, you know, this is what's going, you know, it's going to be, you know, they're going to be talking to the world, specifically to Israel, and, and this is, you know, where they are. They've been there. They have 1,260 days, three and a half years, um, so I would say from the time the church is gone, tribulation begins. They are on the scene. Um, and, and what do we read about these guys? That these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So th this is a reference to Zechariah chapter 4. In the days in which two men, jo Joshua and Zerubbabel, were rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. They are there and they are rebuilding this. And it was an incredibly difficult task. And they are given a promise, and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit to get this work done. And so some would say the two witnesses are Joshua and Zerubbabel on a second building trip. And so they're coming back out of the presence of the Lord to once again consecrate a temple and build a temple. Um, and so that's, you know, that's who they say they are. I, I personally don't think that's them, although I, I can understand why that's the case. Um, but the point I want you to see is that this olive tree, from which you get the olive oil and these lampstands, it's speaking about the power with which these two witnesses are going to function and operate for 1,260 days. These are going to be spirit-filled, empowered followers of Jesus Christ that's proclaiming to the world that they need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and they're going to be sharing this and they're going to be prophesying. And, and, and so they need that. I mean, it's easy to see. Yeah, you guys are going to need that power upon you. But don't we need that power upon us? Aren't we working on a temple project too? It's, it's the temple of, of the church, right? And we're living stones, and I'm called to have, you know, an investment in your life and to work on your life. Edify is a building term, right? Edify, to build up. And so I'm to be building you up, but you're to be building me up, and we're to be building each other. We're all on a building project, and we've been given tools. And the tools are the spiritual gifts that you find in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. That's your hammer. That's your saw, all right? Those are, that's your measuring tape. All of those tools, the spiritual gifts we have there, we have been given these to work on the temple and to build each other up and to reach the world. And as they come in, new believers, is to then strengthen them. We need the power of the Holy Spirit every bit as much as they do. And so we need to be functioning. We need to be working through um, this life. Drawing upon the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you, what's your spiritual gift and are using the power of the Holy Spirit with that gift? Do you have an awareness that the power of the Lord is upon you? When is the last time you have felt the deep need of the Lord in your life? 
Now listen, we can consciously do this, right? We can, as a matter of obedience, come and just be before the Lord in prayer. Lord, I need you. As that hymn says, every hour I need you. I need you, Lord. I'm about to teach, you know, second and third graders. Lord, I need you. I need more power than the two witnesses. Okay, Lord? I can't get these kids to sit still. Lord, I need your power. Or maybe you're going to go sit down with a friend. And you know there's difficulty going on in their life. Whatever it is. Stuff they brought on themselves. It's stuff that's come from without. It doesn't matter. But you know you need to have the ability to comfort. Lord, I need the power of your spirit upon me. They are two that are um, described as uh, those that have the, this anointing upon their life, and we need to have that anointing upon our life. Are well, you talking about you know, first blessing or second blessing? I'm talking about 50th, 100th, 10,000th blessing. I mean, to me, I've never quite understood this theological argument between first blessing and second blessing. It's like every single time... I draw breath and I go to do something in the name of the Lord. I need to be filled afresh with the power of the Holy Spirit. I like what Gail Irwin says. We're vessels and we leak. <laughs> Therefore, I need to be constantly filled up. And in and, and the early church, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them, tongues of fire. They prophesy, or they, they speak in tongues. Um, they evangelize. And thousands of people get saved. But you know what happens in Acts chapter 4? Lord, we need your spirit upon us. And the spirit comes down upon them again. And as you continue to read through the book of Acts, we read, and Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we need to live in this place of asking and relying upon the Lord for the ministry of his spirit. And when we don't do that, the Lord has ways of getting our attention and humbling us and bringing us to the place where um, we're like, yes, Lord, I, I do need you and I do want you. So who are these guys? No, well, you, you see the text in front of you. We don't know. So some, uh, I already mentioned, would say this is, you know, it's uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel on a second temple building project. Something that's kind of fun about that idea. Um, you know, they built it one and come back and do it again. Um, but one name that is most associated for good reason as one of the witnesses, Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Okay, so here's a question. How did Elijah die? He didn't die. He never died. He's the guy that got caught up in that chariot of fire and taken up into heaven. So he, he never died. But there's, there's more reasons than that. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest they come and smite the earth with a curse. So we read that he's going to come. In 2 Kings 2.11, we read that he was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. Um, And interesting, as we, and I need to read a little bit more back in our text um, in, in Revelation chapter 11. So if you don't mind, let's just drop back into verse 5. It says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth. These are fire-breathing prophets, okay? They've got dragon breath. I mean, they just, from their mouth proceeds um, this fire and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven, 
so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Wow. Well, what do we know about Elijah? 2 Kings 1.10. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. This is something that happened in his ministry already in the Old Testament. We read that they would have power to shut up the heavens so no rain falls. James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Kind of an interesting time period, isn't it? And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruits. So that's James 5.17. So, you know, Malachi gives strong indication that he's going to be there. He didn't die, and the kinds of miracles that are being performed are the very types of miracles that were being performed in his earthly ministry. So who's the next, who's the only other guy in Scripture um, that did not die. We, not Elijah. Who's the other guy? Enoch didn't die. He walked with God and boom, he was gone. First guy to have a rapture. Personal rapture all by himself. And, and so many have suggested that it's him. And you know, he has some prophetic things to say. So he is a, a, a great candidate to consider. Um, but the other one that seems most likely to me is, and to many others, is anybody know? Moses. Moses, we read here in uh, verse 6 that they had power over the waters to turn them into what? Blood. Waters into blood. And to strike the earth with all plagues. That kind of, that kind of starts to sound like Moses a little bit, doesn't it? Um, with Moses, I don't know what you really make of it, but in Deuteronomy 34, verse 6, there's... Uh, um, there's intrigue around his, his death, Deuteronomy 34, 6. Um, and of the Lord buries him. It says, And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. So there was, a, there was an interesting kind of a thing that he just, he didn't die of natural causes. He just died. He's like, Moses, lay down. You're going to die now. And then I'll take care of you. I'll bury you. And then he goes to heaven. Um, Jude 1 9, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him. So it's like, what's going on with the there's 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 some intrigue around his death as well. But in his ministry, Moses' ministry, Exodus 7, verse 19, um, we read this. <coughs> then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and over all the pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and in pitchers of stone. So thousands of years earlier, Elijah and Moses carried out the very things that these two witnesses would carry out. It doesn't mean that it's absolutely them. It just makes it really interesting. Because for the nation of Israel, whom God's trying to wake up through these two witnesses, you have the man who represents the prophets, who is Elijah. 
and you have the man that represents the law, who is Moses. And so you have the law and the representatives of the law and the prophets in the last three and a half years, standing, performing the very miracles that every Jew knows they had done throughout their ministry, happening in front of their very eyes, and then giving what I'm saying is running commentary on the seals and on the, you know, the trumpets that have been blown so far. I mean, God's faithful. God is faithful to speak to them. He's waking them up. One more passage is in, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, 17, excuse me, um, verses 1 through 3. In the middle of Jesus' ministry, or in his ministry, I'm not sure it's in the middle, but during his ministry while he was on the earth, um, we read this, Matthew 17, 1 through verse 3. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. In other words, the veil that human flesh had put over the glory of the Lord was peeled back. He was transfigured. His face shone like the sun. They saw Jesus in his heavenly glory. And his clothes became as white as the light. And here it is, verse 3. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them about the kingdom. Just out of nowhere, these two guys show up to be with Jesus and to talk to him about the kingdom. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be wiped out. He's going to be crucified, excuse me. But the next time Jesus comes, it will be to set up his kingdom, and Moses and Elijah will have had a part in that. So this is, one of the, this is the reason why Moses and Elijah are given kind of, in most people's mind, top billing as the two witnesses, because they appeared with Jesus in that transfiguration. It really doesn't matter who does it. It does not matter. But, it's, but we have a lot of scripture that kind of talks about these men and, and what is taking place. These men are going to minister with incredible power. Verses 5 and 6, the, the, that power that's associated with their ministry. But now let's look at verses 7 through 10. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. So this is the Antichrist. Overcome them and kill them. Not what you expect to read after verse 6, is it? 42 months these guys have been driving the world nuts. Now here comes somebody on the scene that is able to overcome, I'm just going to say, the two most notable and powerful men on planet Earth. You can't do any harm to them. You do whatever you want. You know, fire an RPG, it just doesn't go off. You know, I mean, whatever you want to do, you can't touch them. But now the beast, a guy comes on the scene, and he has more power than they. At least that's how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be read, right? 42 months in, and he will overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. So just it's corrupt. Where also our Lord was crucified. So we're talking about Jerusalem, right? Then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, 
because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So verses 7 through 10 is a martyrdom of the witnesses. Or you could say it's, you know, happy dead prophets day. You know, the, the world is, this is why I say they're sick of them. Because when they find out that they're dead, it's like national world holiday, you know, prophets are dead, I'm going to send you a gift. Can you believe it? We don't have to listen to these guys anymore. This is how hard the, the, the world is going to be to the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even with all kinds of signs and wonders, they're not going to repent. And isn't this what people say? If I could just see a sign or a wonder, I'd repent. Oh, that's what they said in Jesus' day too. God in the flesh was there and it didn't seem to impress them to change their hard heart. And the same is going to be true here. And, and so now the Antichrist, he has overcome them. If this is the middle of the tribulation and the Antichrist is the one who, um, well, we know he starts, he makes a treaty, but if he's involved in some way in this temple, and now he's just overcome them. He's got some equity behind him, doesn't he? And he's going to do what? He's already in Jerusalem. And he's going to march right up onto the Temple Mount. And he's going to say, and I am your guy. I just overcame these guys. So clearly, I am more powerful. And I am the one that should receive this worship. But did you notice that the whole world is going to look at these guys lying on the street in Jerusalem. Now, take, rewind this. We can't, but imagine yourself in 96 AD. Try and imagine how the entire world could see two guys lying in Jerusalem for three and a half days. Try and imagine that, you know, people in Bethlehem can see them lying there, which is just a, just a you know, a good country walk down the road. They can't see him unless they walk up there. But people around the world are all going to be able to see these two guys. And it's no mystery to us. I mean, who, I mean, you know, Bedouins on backs of camels have iPhones. The whole world will be able to see. The, the, the broadcasts are, I mean, it's celebration time. Finally, we have some good news to report. The two witnesses are dead. Hip, hip, hooray, parades, you know, gifts. A second Christmas of sorts will be going on. And this is going to be the attitude. You know, in verse 7, we read that they ministered and then they were overcome. And they finished their testimony, though, didn't they? When they finished their testimony, verse 7. When they finished their testimony. God knew how long they would have for their testimony. We know how long they're going to have. Um, but we don't know how long we have. But we know that we're supposed to end the same way they end, right? We're to finish what God has given to us, those gifts that he's given, the ministry that he's given. We are to finish what has begun. A couple of passages that you might want to read are Acts 20, and 2 Timothy 4. Acts 20, verses 22 through 24, and 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. And in these these, you, can, you can just see the determination of Paul to finish the race well. He says at one part of this, he says, I don't count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I've received from the Lord. He says, I don't count my life dear. I just want to finish well. That's what I want to do. How about you? How do you want to finish your race? 
How do you want to finish your testimony? If you knew that you had 1,260 days, 42 months, what would you do? And we don't know how much time we have. Some of us may have much more than that. And some of us may have less than that. But just finish whatever God's given you to do. You don't have to do more than God's given you to do. You only have to do what God's given you to do. I'm no Billy Graham. Great. If we need another Billy Graham, he'll be raised up. But we need you. And the Lord wants to use you in the sphere of influence that you have already been given. Finish your testimony. And the way you do that is to do it with the power the Lord has given. Verses 8 through 10, you see the rejoicing of their death. And it's, again, happy dead witness day. Um, and they're celebrating. But let's, keep, let's finish up just real quickly. Verses 11 through 14. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So the Antichrist, you know, if I'm right, his big PR, I've got more power than these guys, doesn't last very long, does it? They stood on their feet. I wonder what kind of fear comes upon the world. It's a great fear. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw it. What? In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And here's an interesting thing. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So maybe it's at this point that Israel really, be, we, there's a turning that begins to happen with them. But the people are going to see this, and it's going to have an incredible impact. So verse 14, the second woe is past. The second woe is which trumpet? Which trumpet is that? Sixth. There's three woes, and they are trumpets, five, six, and seven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe, the terrible woe, is coming quickly. So it's, this is the kind of thing, when you come to the book of Revelation, you've got, you've got to pull out your Bible, and you've got to start reading. You've got to start cross-referencing. And as you do, you begin to just see this incredible pattern and uh, of scripture just coming together and fitting together but as we leave here application for us time is drawing near Israel is in her land um, we need to live soberly and we need to be faithful witnesses and we need to do and carry this out with the power of the Holy Spirit just like these two witnesses fulfilled their ministry this is how we fulfill it so in one sense we're not so different than them We've got ministry, we've got a task, we have a testimony, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit.